This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with David Canfield. Hello, Katie. Uh, David, we get to finally look toward new television after our sprint of Emmy season <laughs> interviews with Emmy contenders. Um, and we have a really exciting one to talk about. You talked to an Emmy winner, Jarrell Jerome, about his role in I'm a Virgo, which seems incredibly intriguing. Um, and it sounds like from what you say, it lives up to the expectations. It's Boots Riley. So it's, <laughs> it's going to be incredibly intriguing. Uh, he plays a 13 foot tall young man, uh-huh, obviously, um, which was exactly and exclusively the pitch that Jerome received from Boots Riley. The email subject was literally 13 foot tall black man from Oakland. Mm-hmm. And as you get, you know, that's the kind of email you get from Boots Riley. And, <laughs> Boots Riley, and, director of Sorry to Bother You, maybe. Yes, uh, <laughs> probably should have if said that. If anyone's seen that movie, you kind of get where this is coming from. Yeah, which is a great movie, and it's it's a movie that's led a really long life, and I, I think that this show in its own way could too. It's, it's wildly original, and Jerome's pretty great in it. Um, yeah, and you talk to him kind of about uh, his career since he won that Emmy for When They See Us. It was such a great moment, I remember kind of the look on his face when he won that Emmy. Um, but it, it posed challenges to him maybe that I wouldn't have expected. First of all, I was watching the show and he's so good in it and so different from when they see us or for that matter, Moonlight, which I think was our, a lot of our introductions to him. And I realized I hadn't seen him in anything since when they see us. And so naturally I asked him about it. And for him, I think there was a real consideration of not wanting to take a step down from what he was able to do in that show, which was created by Ava DuVernay, as you mentioned, won him the Emmy very deservedly. Um, And then the other factor was he won it, and then the COVID pandemic happened, and projects he was involved in got scrapped, and nothing else on that caliber really came together. And I, I asked him if it was kind of 
nerve wracking or or stressful to to essentially hold out. Um, and and it sounds like it was, but it also sounds like it, it paid off based on this show. And he's also in Steven Soderbergh's upcoming Full Circle. That's really exciting. I am excited to hear all about it in your conversation with Gerald Jerome. Jarell Jerome, hello. I love, I'm a Virgo. I love this show. <laughs> Thanks, David. It means a lot. Yeah. I do too, honestly. I genuinely do. I feel like anyone who's a fan of Boots Riley was eagerly awaiting the show, especially when they saw what the premise was. Yeah. <laughs> um, from what I understand of its origins with you, you get an email from Boots with the subject line, 13 foot tall black man from Oakland. <laughs> yep. Exactly what I read. <laughs> do you remember like where you were when you got that email? Like what goes through your head when like you just get this notification with that subject line? <laughs> yeah. The email started my day. It was the first thing I woke up to. I was, um, I don't remember where I was. I think I was in a hotel and I woke up, checked my phone, went through my email. It was the first email I saw from Boots Riley, 13 foot tall black man in Oakland. And just like your reaction, I was, I was dumbfounded and also just confused. I, I wanted to know exactly yeah. I didn't, I didn't know it was going to be a series, whether it was going to be a film. I, I, it was just the concept that he threw at me, and he said, I need to meet with you. And I was like, I need to meet with you. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we sat down about a week later, and we chopped it up. Awesome. What was your familiarity with him? Sorry to bother you. It's such a great movie, and he's really a true original um, yeah. in the, the current filmmaking landscape. Where I assume you'd seen it, at least. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, I saw Sorry to Bother You in theaters when it had come out. So I was one of the many people who sat there with their jaws dropped by the end of the film, um, asking so many questions, but also piecing so many thoughts together and thinking like you didn't watch a movie when you saw Sorry to Bother You. You saw you saw art and you saw something that meant something and you had to figure out what it meant. And I thought that was a testament to how creative Boots can be. Um, I also was familiar with some of his music. And just knew that he was a revolutionary who was always willing to be out the box. Because if you really listen to his music and go through his catalog, you'll see how much it translates with the films and the writing he does in this industry. Yeah, 100%. And I know you're you're really into music as well. So I'm curious, as you got to talking about this project a little bit more deeply, like even just beyond this premise and, and what you'd be working on together, like what kind of stuff did you guys talk about in terms of inspirations and things like that? Yeah, we when we sat down a week later, we had a long conversation. There was a lot of different things to attack. Uh, my favorite part of the conversation is that he brought this briefcase with him. And in the briefcase, he had these little figurines of the characters. He had a giant cootie doll, a little cootie doll, and then a little floor doll. And he, and he had the car that cootie would ride in. And he sat there and he showed me exactly how he would shoot it, which was forced perspective. And he said oh, wow. he was trying to work less with CGI, less with the special effects, and make it feel visceral and grounded and authentic. So it would require me having to do some mental gymnastics and work a little harder because it'll be weird camera angles and you'll be working with miniature prop sets, he was telling me. And you won't really be looking at your scene partners in the eyes based off of how we have to line you guys up. So when he was saying this, this was all music to my ears. I'm like, oh, a challenge? I love it. Give it to me. So I think that was the main crutch. His main selling point when it came to this project was his explanation of how he was going to shoot it. And I think it just, it, it impressed people and it also scared everybody. Like, oh my God, how are we going to do this? But um, on top of that, Boots uh, spoke about Cootie 
and how he feels he relates to the character and how he feels Cootie is an extension of him. And we started to speak on how I can relate to Cootie as well. And it was just a great vibe and we connected so well. And from the moment we finished that meeting, I was on board 100%. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? What's the right amount of socializing for you? And how do you recharge? Maybe you thrive around people, or maybe you need more alone time. Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash LittleGoldMen today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash LittleGoldMen. What do you remember about, like, seeing those kinds of miniatures and sets for the first time? I mean, it's got to be a new one for you. <laughs> well, I was just like, who is this guy? Who is this guy <laughs> who just took me to have lunch and he has these little toys in front of me. It's just one of those moments that I won't ever forget. And it's those moments, you know, years down the line in my career where I say earlier in my career, I sat down with the legend himself, Boots Riley, and he uh, he demonstrated how he was going to shoot. I'm a Virgo. But yeah, I was just impressed at his detail and his care for the project. Uh, he moves with so much passion. And if you're going to go and make figurines and, and bring it to somebody that you want to pitch the show to. I think there's just so much drive and hustle behind that. It was dope. Did I read there were also like giant dolls of you hanging around the set? Two of them. Two gigantic 13-foot <laughs> silicone dolls of me. Uh, I had to go in for like four hours and get a huge body scan. And uh, they yeah, they made these two dolls because, like I said, the force perspective shooting required certain tricks. And so that that was for all the over-the-shoulder shots. So all the other actors in the entire show, anybody who did a scene with me, they were only acting towards that doll and uh, wow. not me. 
I would find that kind of haunting if there were just like 13 foot versions of me hanging around. <laughs> I had a dream once about it. <laughs> oh, no, no. Was shooting the show and I had to go. I, I forgot who I told the next day. I was like, yeah, I just had a dream that these two dolls were in my apartment. <laughs> they, were, they, were pretty, they were pretty terrifying. And it's funny because the face that the doll, the resting face that the doll had was just like this like jaw drop, like dead eyed pair. Right. It was pretty terrifying. I can only imagine. I feel like, though, if you don't have at least one surreal dream after working with Boots Riley, you probably didn't do it right. So you did it right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I always wonder what Boots' dreams are like. (laughs) (laughs) His brain, man. Yeah. This show gives us an interesting window into that, for sure. Sure. Um, One thing that was really exciting to me about just you being in this is I hadn't gotten to see you do a lot of comedy. And obviously, this being Boots Riley, it's not the broadest or most, uh, you know, accessible necessarily of comedy but it is a really funny show your performance is really funny um were you looking to do that especially coming off of some pretty intense dramatic work like how did what what did that shift look like for you yeah definitely i think i think i was definitely looking to do the next challenge whatever that required um because the bar i guess was pretty uh, it was set pretty high with my my last performance and um Mm -hmm that just kind of made me hungry to do something that would challenge me in that way again. And I didn't know how it would come because projects like Moonlight and When They See Us don't come around often, Mm -hmm. you know? So I can't sit around and wait for it, um, but I will pick up the phone when Boots Riley gives me a challenge like this. Um, When it came to the comedic side of it all, yeah, definitely. I I would love to be an actor that can show range and that can can exhibit all kinds of different emotions in, in different ways. And I think doing this so early on can help show that. Um, Cause I'm, listen, I'm a funny guy. A lot of people personally <laughs> in my life think I'm a very funny person. Um, but you know what they say, the funnier you are, the more dramatic you can be and vice versa. Yeah. And so uh, I definitely am comfortable in dramatic spaces as a dramatic actor, but I want to get into comedy and I want to do uh intelligent comedy like i'm a virgo you know and blend my dramatic skills with the comedic world um but i say i do find it harder to do comedy um Mm. when i worked with boots specifically there's a scene where i'm in the club for the first time and it's it's hilarious it's in a hilarious so good (laughs) it's written very well it's just this big moment for cootie and i remember before we shot it how funny I thought it was and how funny I thought the lines were. And so for the first few takes, on top of having to not look at any scene partners and then right. sit next to these miniature uh, speakers next to me and pretend they were, um, it was making music, I, I had to think about how do I make this funny and how do I deliver these lines as funny as Boots wrote it. And I remember stressing certain lines the wrong way just because I thought, maybe that's how I make this one funny. And maybe this is how I do this. And I was just so in my head and Boots came up to me. He was like, Jarrell, don't make it funny. It's huh. already funny. The, the lines are funny. Don't make it funny. And that's all it took for me. And so I went and I didn't try to make it funny. I tried to make it cootie and it changed a bit. And I think we found a bit more of a groove with that scene. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, that, that's kind of what your task to do a lot of the time is be for lack of a better way of putting it, the straight man of the of the scene where you have characters reacting to you in like these really outrageous ways. Right. Were you like, like, you didn't have the scene partners, but were you kind of able to see the way that 
a lot of your very funny co-stars were reacting to the character? Like, could you kind of play off that in your head? Definitely. We we stressed rehearsal periods for sure. We we wanted to yeah. make sure that we were connected. We were we had the lines set to each other face to face. We did that every scene so that it was easier. Um, and then just offset hanging out and being friends with them. When you hear Brett talk in your ear, you know exactly what face he's making. Yeah. Or if you don't know what face he's making, you can make it up and it'll be hilarious because he's just a funny guy and um, just a great charismatic spirit. So if you know he's funny and he has a great charismatic spirit, that's how I'll paint Felix in my head for this moment. And so it was just having to do a lot of that. It was uh, just added work for each moment, you know, but it was... It was great. And Boots curating that type of vibe on set where everybody could hang out helped those moments where we weren't together during the scene. And I had an earpiece yeah. in my ear the whole time. So if we were in separate rooms even, I'd have this like earpiece lodged in and I'd be doing the scenes just hearing them, but looking at dolls and avoiding <laughs> the camera. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> this is everything I would want from a Boots Riley production. So. <laughs> everything. I'm like, man, you just took Sorry to Bother You and gave us steroids. And he just went yeah. with it. Yeah. Uh, Cootie, as we meet him, he's lived an entirely sheltered existence, understandably, for those raising him because of uh, his size. Mm -hmm. um, the show follows him going out into the world, and, and you play him with this um, very earnest, wide-eyed quality. How did you think about some of the choices uh, that you made in, in terms of getting that across? You know, Cootie's 13 feet tall to everyone else besides him. He mm -hmm. he's so used to his stature. He's so used to who he is. So the shock of his height is he's been over the shock and he's been so used to how big he is and he's aware of it. So I ignored what it would feel like. What What is it like being tall or what is it like being super, 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 super tall? Because I didn't know if I could find that answer so quickly. So instead, I focused on the naivete and the and the youth blended with the wisdom that he had because although he was trapped inside his whole life he was well read he was well fed and he was loved and cared for so usually when you hear a story about someone who's trapped it's like this torture or this this these terrible parents who are uh abusing them or something mm -hmm. but it was the opposite he's in there but in there with love um so i wanted to toe the line between this guy who loved everything he saw because that's all he knew was to love but also a virgo who knows everything that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of the virgo quality right there is that yeah I, I i i know it all i may not be right but i know it all and so yeah um all those little intricate things kind of created the face that i was i think i think what i was really doing was making a ton of facial expressions because yeah could he pretends like he knows what face he should make. He pretends he knows what words he should use. And Boots and I really loved when I would play with that because it shows the audience that there's so much more than his height and there's so much more than how big he is. And when he goes outside, the first thing you think is he'll probably step on me. He'll probably rob me. He'll probably hurt me. But then you'll see him try to make a mean face to scare you. And you're like, this guy's not scary at all. That's not how you make <laughs> That's just not how you make a mean face. And so... um yeah, it was a lot of playing with that. And Boots Boots was really good at talking to me and coming up with his own ideas, too, when it came to how Cootie might feel in a certain moment. So it was a very cool 50-50 relationship with me. Yeah, there's a, a moment after the club scene you're talking about where some guys who are kind of, you know, hollering at him, 
are, are trying to intimidate him and and like what you're saying cootie doesn't make necessarily the most intimidating face and they they jump on him and <laughs> then they realize they're dealing with a 13 foot tall guy <laughs> exactly like no matter what he's still huge and we can't all he needs to do is move his hand once and then we're done for but that yeah. i think that was the beauty of that scene too was from across the street, if you were far away, you see a giant smacking people and it's terrifying. You want to run the other way. But if you look closer, it's really just this kid in a moment where he's so uncomfortable, feels awkward. He's never been presented with this. So he's trying to de-escalate the situation, but he's actually escalating it. And so it's it's a cool scene. Yeah. yeah. How did you practice his voice? I mean, it's so specific and you, you tow this line again of like, pretty comic, I think, at times, and, and very earnest. Um, it's really tough to pull off, but it always felt just right to me. Thanks. Thank you, David, for saying that, because the voice uh, and the physicality were definitely a big part of figuring Cootie out. Um, I had a couple conversations with Boots early on about Cootie's voice, and where I originally wanted to go with it was Oakland, because, uh, you know, hmm. from there. And so Boots sent me a ton of Bay Area dialect things, and I was going to get into trying to use the Bay Area dialect, then I thought, Cootie has never been outside. He's never, he's in the Bay Area, but he hasn't been in the Bay Area. He's been in yeah. a Victorian home with his mom, who has a very delicate voice and a very delicate way of speaking. And then his dad, who has this very like, you know, uh, it's Mike Epps. <laughs> so, yeah, it's Mike. <laughs> it's Mike Epps. And so um, I wanted to figure out, well, if Cootie was growing up, who was he so inspired by vocally? Who, What was the voice that was so inspiring for him? And I think it would have been his mother. And then, yeah. to boot surprise, I said, in the hero. Because I think that, uh, mm. I think his obsession for the hero probably started at a very young age. And if you notice, a lot of his quotes come from the hero, even when he's out with his friends and he says something. And they look at him like, nobody says that. He's like, I think people say that. But it's only because the hero says that. And so... Um, I wanted Cootie to have this lighter tone to his voice, this sort of naive babyish voice that hasn't been hurt, that hasn't really been, you know, beat up by anybody or lied to by somebody. It's just this innocence to him. Um, but at the same time, this sort of structured way of speaking so he can, you know, emulate the hero and emulate what it's like to be the, the hero of the world. And so when he goes outside, and he realizes everybody speaks different, he just becomes so different. And it makes him a bit more different than the people around him still. Yeah. The hero is kind of your your character's foil uh, in this show, and, and their fates slowly collide, let's say. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's played by Walton Goggins, who I think of as like, his voice is pretty iconic across yeah. a lot of shows and movies. So that's an interesting guy to partly model your character's voice after. Right, exactly. Um, I love Walter, man. But yeah, his voice is so it's strong it's, and it's clean and there's a there's like this specificness to it. And so I wanted Cootie to have a bit of it, not perfectly, but just a bit of it. So when you're on these sets, I'm curious if there's anything like really logistical or specific that came up in terms of like how you interact with something as a very tall guy that maybe you wouldn't have thought of that I wouldn't have thought of that's like super technical. Yeah, I mean, almost everything, I guess. I right. guess I guess almost everything we had to stop and go, well, how would somebody super tall do this? You know, all the way from squeezing into Big Bang and having to, you know, having to let my neck down. And then I, I'm really, really impressed and have to give so like props to uh, the prop masters and set designers and the production designers because they're, you know, bench pressing a Caprice was so fun. 
yeah. <laughs> you know, they they really had a, <laughs> had a mini caprice, emptied it out, and and I got to bench press it, and we had to sit there and figure out well which way, what's you know with the yeah. with the prop guys like which how would I sit, how would I get under it, how where would I grab it, what's the easiest way that would actually make me feel like I'm working out, things like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then the phone like Cootie had this mini phone and so i f i came up with he just uses his pinky because that's the only uh his yeah. the smallest finger that can fit so it's just if i go if you gave me a list of the things i can go and say well we had to figure that out but it was definitely a ton of different things that we had to um sit and think about what made sense and what would look natural yeah we've talked about a lot of specific things in all that i'm curious like what is the toughest thing about playing a giant the toughest thing about playing a giant is not making him seem like he's a giant. I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. It does, yeah. Yeah, the toughest thing was 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 making the audience forget he's a giant. That's what it was. That was the point. That's even the point of the title, I think Boots said, was it's not I'm a 13-foot giant. It's not I'm a giant. It could have been, but it's it's I'm a Virgo. I, I'm a human. I have these traits about me. And so the hardest part was showing all of the traits of Cootie so by the end, you forget he was this tall guy. You just think he was a friend of yours, you know, and, and, and somebody who's just like all of us. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. I want to zoom out a little bit. You mentioned Moonlight, When They See Us, and in your fairly short career, you've been able to do some pretty amazing work with Barry Jenkins, Ava DuVernay, and now Boots Riley. Yeah. Between those three, say, like, what are some things you've picked up just as an actor about filmmaking because they're all very unique and pretty distinctive in the way they do their work. Yeah, it's it's cool because now that I can zoom out and think about working with all three of them separately, it, it may even be less about what they said to me and more about how they work that, that, and, hmm. you know, that, in terms of what I learned. Because like you said, they are all so different and the way they create their projects are different. And so when you work with them, you can see how differently they move and even how certain... I even work with Steven Soderbergh too, to add on to that. Yeah, absolutely. So when I think of a director who is so, uh, he, he shoots him, you know, he holds the camera himself. Uh, he doesn't direct the actors much, but then Ava, she'll sit with me and she'll make sure I am fully, uh, good to move on or she'll make sure that she understands the choices that she, she'll even ask about what, so what was that choice you just made? And that, that's a whole different, type of directing and then Barry has this lax cool energy about him with his hat backwards and he's like man <laughs> you got it like just you work it and then we'll talk it and so um I think being able to work with so many great filmmakers early on has definitely inspired me to want to make my own films one day just because hmm. it's so inspiring to see these individuals have such a vision and know how to captain that ship and really do it and I've been lucky to work with captains of a ship, you know, not just these lackadaisical directors who are like, ah, whatever, man, we're making a movie. These are people who uh, do passion projects. And so I've been lucky to be a part of passion projects and then work with some great directors too. 
but they're all so different. And yeah, I can definitely sit for a while and try to think hard on specific things that they taught me. But for me, really, it's overall thinking about how individually they moved so differently, but still were able to come up with something so great. Yeah. Yeah. After When They See Us came out, uh, for which you uh, very, very deservedly won the Emmy, uh, I believe you filmed Concrete Cowboy and then, from what I could tell, took a few years off of acting, um, at least on screen. Is that is that what happened for you? So not purposely. No, okay. No. That's, that was my next question. <laughs> yeah, I definitely took a break, uh, just not purposely. Um, 2019 was an incredible year. And then 2020 was the worst year for all of us. So yeah. um, I just at the height of everything going on, uh, things just went to to the ground. I had three projects lined up uh, to shoot throughout 2020. One of them is the project that I'm currently working on now, Unstoppable, that finally came around a full three years later. So right. um, it was that first. And then when those projects went under, uh, it was about, finding the right project to do now because there weren't many projects at all. And so yeah. um, my team and I got very serious in conversation about being picky and about being meticulous with what we choose because now that everything's so sensitive, we don't know what the future is. You know, We don't know what can happen. So I remember saying to them, all I know is I want to do the next, like the next, I want to raise the bar and challenge myself. Even if that means sacrificing financially and sacrificing a length of time, not being able to work on a project. Cause I knew it'd be worth it in terms of longevity, you know, hmm. running for a paycheck now could have been great in the time in terms of certain things I may have wanted to do, but longevity wise, I think it would have slowed me down because if I can hit you with something like when they see us early, then I need to prove that I can do it again and that it wasn't just it wasn't just that. And so and then, like I said, these projects don't come off. Then Boots Riley doesn't come knocking at your door every day with a genius idea like this. So I count my blessings and I wait and I'm patient and I think it's worked out for me uh, because now, although I do have a lot of people like, where are you? What's going on? You won an Emmy and then you left. And you know, yeah. I, I think those questions will be answered and not only answered, but I think people will be like, all right, cool. He's not only back, but he's he's still working on the caliber that he's trying to work on. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I wonder, did it feel scary at all to to kind of hold that conviction? I mean, obviously it pulled off that you that you did do that because now you're, you're working with Soderbergh and Boots Riley. But yeah. I mean- yeah, there is this feeling, I think, especially in Hollywood, of striking while the iron's hot and stuff like that. Yes, yes, terrified. I, it's a, it wasn't the best feeling. It wasn't. It's not like I'm walking around like, yep, yeah, not working. <laughs> you know? Right. It was. Um, it was scary and risky, and risky is the biggest word. But I, for three years now, I've been saying it's going to be worth it to myself, and I've been saying huh. it, and I've been very adamant about it and I believed in myself and the people around me and so it's so great to see it pay off but I'm still sitting with nerves because the shows haven't come out yet so sure. I'm, I still got about a week left of this limbo three-year limbo I've been in but yeah after you know the next few weeks I'll definitely hopefully be back in conversation and people can remember that I exist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I expect they will. I, I think they, they remember already, but yes, I think starting next week, that will definitely happen. <laughs> um, 
So let, let's end with asking you a little bit about being a Libra in the spirit of the show's <laughs> <laughs> title. Uh, you know, Cootie says he's a Virgo. He's ready to go on this adventure. Yeah. What about being a Libra prepared you, has prepared you for this moment you're talking about in your career? I think the the funny part of all of this and the irony in all this is that I'm not a sign person. <laughs> I'm not. Me neither. Yeah, yeah. This, it's a big deal that I'm even asking you this. Okay, my, so, just, my friends are going to be shocked. All right, good. So we're on the same page here. I, yes. I'm not, um, I don't really lead myself with astrological signs or anything. I think it's, I think it's great. I have no, you know, I have no quarrels with it. I just, yeah, I don't have those apps or anything like that. So when I first got into doing the show, all I really learned about was Virgos. I just looked up Virgos and I studied what a Virgo is and I didn't even right. take time to look up what makes me a Libra. But if you spend time in LA, everyone around you will tell you what you are and they will tell you how you move because they know so much about science. <laughs> and so based off of my knowledge of the people around me, I am hopeless romantic and I am someone mm. who is very emotionally available which can cause rifts because maybe it's a little too much emotion you know um and so i think in terms of how it's preparing me for my career it's not good that i'm a libra <laughs> <It's not> preparing <laughs> for what's about to happen um but i am definitely aware of like just how i am and as a person and I have learned so much from my own mistakes that as I go into this next chapter in my life, I feel 20, 30, 40 times more grounded than I did back in 2019 when all of that shift happened for me the first time. That does it for today's show. We'll be back on Thursday. Uh, in the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider, and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield, 97. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.